Blaze Radio Network. And now, Reform This with Dr. Sudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. It's great to be back with all of you. A uh, little uh, recharge the batteries over the past few weeks. Uh, took a, a couple of weeks off. Uh, spent some time with the family. Traveled to Europe uh, and... Uh, uh, ready to get back on track with our podcast, and uh, thanks for giving me that time. Hope you're all uh, also getting your batteries recharged, and it is great to be back with you on cycle with our with this podcast. And you know, uh, this week I'm uh, just horrified, horrified by the attack against Salman Rushdie, and uh, we're going to spend some time talking about that. Uh, our prayers are with him for speedy recovery and for his family and all his loved ones. Um, and as we get into that, we're reminded of the importance of family. We're reminded of the importance of our values of freedom, of liberty, and all the things that we cherish and how quickly it can be peeled away and how, how limited we are in our ability to change the reality of some of the most militant radicals of society. But... If we live without moving for that change, if the people that have the courage to speak out as Salman Rushdie has had are not able to continue to speak out, are not able to continue to speak their mind about whatever issue might exist, whether it's related to Islam, Muslims, theology, freedom, government, whatever it might be, the moment we lose that freedom that free speech, we cease to be sentient human beings. The ideas in our head, if we can't express them and question authority, question society, question our surroundings, we are no longer human because it's that creativity. It is that that uh, viability of, of, of thought that makes us human. And the loss of that makes us inhuman. What happened a few days ago, a few days ago, as Salman Rushdie was beginning to speak at Chautauqua Institution in Western New York about the importance of the U.S. offering asylum for writers and other artists in exile, as he is the author of 14 novels, he is Sir Salman Rushdie, as he was conferred that honor by the British government, which at the time, and I say at the time because it is amazing how things change over a few years, a few decades, but he had been conferred that honor because he came for protection, he came to be free as a British citizen and uh, as did the rest of his family. For anyone who may not know, which just boggles my mind, and actually I've also, I have to tell you how painful it is to see how little coverage is there's some coverage but how little coverage this should be the this story should have been at the top of every newscast over the past three or four days because of what it means in the battle for free speech against jihad against radical islam about iran about foreign policy domestic all the things that come 
to head would this story have been ignored and the battlefronts we see continue to be in denial with blinders. For those who have been living possibly under a rock who may not know who Salman Rushdie is, in 1989, Iran's late leader, Ayatollah Khomeini, banned his book, Satanic Verses, and issued a fatwa, which is an Islamic ruling, a judicial ruling that is felt to be the law of their land, and obviously was called upon he called for Rushdie's death. He called for his assassination and called for a $3 million bounty on his head. His 1988 book, The Satanic Verses, was regarded by some militant Muslims as blasphemous. And uh, I won't get into the details of the book. It's a fiction, fictional book and obviously based on a few things that are considered either sort of... Uh, um, to be known conjectures or criticisms of Islam about verses that were not included in the Quran, verses that were felt to be uh, embarrassing to Islam. Bottom line is, is as as an as a Muslim, this is a book of fiction, and uh, there is, uh, I think, nothing that uh, tests my faith or anyone's faith more than those who may have alternative ideas, and that's really what the adherence to religion is, is you accept it, you choose it, and you have a debate about it, and you give people the space to criticize it. And that's, I think, what Muslims should have done to defend Salman Rushdie. And for decades, he had to get security. He had to continue to live under the threat that any of the millions upon millions of radicalized Muslims could decide to make the targeting of him part of their jihad as did the top of the jihadi pyramid, which is the jihadist of the Khomeinists and their terror forces like the IRGC, the Iranian Republican Guard Corps, and so many others. And, by the way, right away many of us said, you know, you have to realize what's going on with Iran recently. They've been targeting many, many high-profile folks from the past few years, including Secretary Pompeo, including... Um, National Security Advisor Ambassador John Bolton and so many others that have been targeted and needed to now get 24-7 security as a result. And then we saw the Iranian dissident in New York, Masih uh, um, Alinejad, and the fact that she was warned about a plot against her life by the Iranian government and the Iranian regime security forces in New York. And people thought, oh, that's just sort of an odd aberration. And now they're beginning, they're unleashed. Now, is this a plot or is this a lone wolf? Who knows? I mean, that was the whole point of the fatwa, wasn't it? The ruling against Salman Rushdie was that if the if the grand puba of political Islam, of Islamic jihadism, declared a military ruling, that folks, just like Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and others, would decide they wanted to go to heaven, or their version of heaven, which... I pray is hell, that they would go to heaven if they committed this act of war, of jihad, and as their militant interpretations give, that that would guarantee them a place in paradise. And the patience of these individuals is far greater than ours, isn't it? Because now, 33 years after that initial fatwa, this individual by the name of 
Hadi Matar, as Sir Salman Rushdie was being introduced to an audience of about 2,500 people, he was wearing a black mask, had a ticket for the event, and by the way, there were some police reportedly assigned to the event. I don't know where's the story on what kind of protection that was offering. A man wearing a black mask stormed the stage and began assaulting Rushdie, stabbing him repeatedly in the neck, in the eye, in the chest, multiple times according to witness accounts. Audience members rushed to help and apprehend the suspect, according to the Guardian, before a state trooper at the event arrested him. Oh, and they had they needed four or five people to pull him off. Sir Salman Rushdie was then resuscitated and taken by helicopter to a nearby hospital. And now he's grasping for his life. It appears that he has turned the corner. My understanding is that he has been removed from his ventilator and is breathing on his own. He may have lost vision in the, in the eye that was attacked. His bleeding has stopped. And we pray for his speedy recovery and that, and that he come back stronger and that his pain and suffering not be in vain and that we, and especially those of us in the Muslim community especially, we have a lot of work to do. It is how many cycles of radicalization are involved where this Hadi Matar, whether he's directly involved with Iranian security intelligence or not, I don't really care. The bottom line is this is part of the global jihad. 24-year-old from New Jersey who purchased a ticket for the event. Authorities believe he was acting alone. And by the way, the charge against him was second-degree murder. Second-degree murder. I'll remind you, what is second-degree murder? Second-degree murder is that there's malicious intent, but no premeditation. Oh, okay. So no premeditation. The guy, the, 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 the Islamist militant, buys a ticket to see Salman Rushdie, has a knife with him that he brought with him, and then attacks him. You know, as I tweeted even before we knew who it was exactly, I hope that this militant should be not only charged with terror crimes, but charged with hate crimes. But, oh, it's a Muslim, so we would never say that. Because, oh, this would be Islamophobia. It's just, it's amazing to me, it's incredulous that from the police apparatus, the security apparatus, to the media, to the coverage, even as Salman Rushdie was almost going to be breathing his last breaths after this absurd fatwa against him, that's been covered. People were pulling uh, Bernard Lewis's op-ed from the Washington Post on February 24th, 1989, where he talked about the law of Islam and the validity of this, this fatwa by Imam Khomeini and its impact. And, and, and he balanced some of the considerations about what is perceived, the reasoning behind it from the Islamist militant perspective. And that's Bernard Lewis in 89. There have been many, many, many thousands that have written on this and and Salman Rushdie has not only been featured on uh, a number of documentaries, he's been on Bill Maher's uh, talk show many times. He has recently been the uh, leader of Penn America. Um, he's a former president of Penn America. And Penn International, as uh, many of you may know, is a 
organization about the freedom of speech, the freedom of journalists, and uh, the power of the pen, if you will. And the New York governor's response that the pen is mightier than the sword. And uh, so many responses came out that uh, defending the freedom of Salman Rushdie and horrified and mortified by the militant attack on him and, and how this brought to fruition, to fruition, a jihadist, a jihadist call to arms against Salman Rushdie. And this is the continuation of previous threats that have existed against Salman Rushdie and those who work with him. In 1993, William Nagard, the publisher of the Norwegian edition of the Satanic Verses, was severely wounded after being shot three times outside his home in Oslo, Norway. And he spoke out about the attack against Rushdie and said, Rushdie has paid a high price. He is a leading author who has meant so much to literature and he has found a good life in the United States. In 1991, Hitoshi Igarashi, the scholar who translated verses into Japanese, was stabbed to death. His body found at the Tsukuba University campus northeast of Tokyo. And in the same year, Ettore Capriolo, the translator of the Italian version, was attacked and stabbed in Milan, suffering knife wounds of his neck, chest, and hands. So don't tell me, please, that there's no common thread, that there's no common root cause of a militant version of Islam that while there may be far, far many more Muslims that are non-militant and non-violent, we still have to own up to the fact that there's a root interpretation which is supremacist. So let's dive into for a second. For a second, as we look and you look through uh, Ilhan Omar's Twitter feed and hardly, I, I, I haven't seen yet anything about Salman Rushdie. You look through the Council on American-Islamic Relations and they give their their uh, um, obligatory condemnation of the violence and then go on in this verbal, verbal diarrhea as we saw from folks like Daisy Khan and others that then starts talking about the uh, how how much confusion there is about what is Islam and what is not Islam and this apologetic that ends up actually doing what I said right after 9-11 and many of us said on 9-12 and 9-14-2001 which is the we condemn terrorism but the but crowd the we condemn terrorism but which is those that are in search of a that are in need of a 12 a 12 point plan to get past their alcoholism or their denial their plan in order to finally rid themselves of the fact that they need to own up to the fact that there's some root cause supremacist ideas within the theology that we call the faith of Islam that we love. Now, call that Muslim interpretation, whatever it is, but let's look at what this comes from. So, again, if, for those of you who follow my podcast closely, you'll know that I believe the root cause is the concept, the idea of an Islamic state, a, a national identity born through and revealed into an identity of collectivism that the state would then have a flag, an identity, a unified 
position that is under Islam rather than under God, but under Islam, under the what the Muslims believe to be the religion of God, and that that man-made interpretation then becomes God's interpretation and government becomes God. The legal system of the government becomes not common law, and the Quran is no longer simply a source, but the source of law. And thus it's no longer about a debate about what passages mean and their relevance to history versus now, but it's about literalism. It's about what God said must be enacted, and thus the legal system becomes God's law. It becomes black and white, and there's no longer freedom of religion. There's no longer freedom of speech. And if the state is Islamic and your patriotism, your nationalism is identified and connected to being Muslim and thus following the allegiance and the loyalty to the state flag and the state national identity of Islam, then the Qur'an becomes your constitution. Then its interpretation by the legislature becomes, or the parliament becomes, your practice of faith. And if you question it, you have blasphemed. If you question it, blasphemy then becomes sedition. And if you leave Islam, you're an apostate. And for those who articulate questions, whether they chose and say that they're leaving or not, the government apostatizes them. The government tells them they're no longer Muslims, that they no longer deserve the rights of Muslims because they have their rights taken away from them by God, and the God of their Islamic state is the government and the interpretation of that law by the government. And thus you have Islamic fatwas, religious rulings by their jurists, then enact interpretations of what are the things they try to prevent. And to them, moderation is about taking that violence away and no longer having uh, fatwas about violence, but rather moderate interpretations. No, this needs a wholesale revolution. And the revolution is not protected by saying that somehow you're going to respect all faiths. Revolutions are protected and demonstrated of their morality based on how they treat the extremes. How you treat those who not only choose not to be Muslim, but reject it vociferously and shout it, shout it from the rooftops. Because as so many have said, so many philosophers and others have said, if you have a religion, if you have a messenger of God that cannot be criticized or somehow needs violence and intimidation and bullying in order to shut down the opposition, then what is this religion? What is this faith? What is this God that's worth protecting? And we've said this after Al-Qaeda. We've said this after ISIS and their years of horrific oppression. We've said this when we've criticized the Saudi Wahhabi interpretations of the Muslim Brotherhood interpretation, the Khomeinist interpretation in Iran, the Jamaat Islamiyah, the theocrats from Indonesia to America. They exist, and their interpretation of Islam has gotten very little pushback. And every time we do pushback, if you criticize and you say that somehow this is an interpretation that needs to be criticized, that needs to be reformed, you have become an Islamophobe. Islamophobia is just another mechanism of shutting down dissent. Islamophobia is a way of apologizing and actually defending, becoming an accomplice 
for the death threats, for the assassination attempts against heroic free thinkers, from Muslim reformers all the way to Salman Rushdie. They deserve our utmost protection and respect. We might disagree with their ideas, either strongly or uh, uh, however it might be. But the moment we do not defend their freedom to speak as strongly as we defend our own, the moment we don't attack their enemies that want to snuff them out with knives as they present a speech about free speech, the moment we don't attack them vociferously and use every everything in our arsenal to protect them, the moment we become accomplices. And this is exactly, this is exactly what Matthew Sayyid said in the Sunday Times. He said, the Ayatollahs have found their accomplices in Western liberals. We blame the Rushdie attack on Muslim fanatics, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't ignore our own complicity. And he went on and said that a fatwa was imposed on Rushdie after the publication of the Satanic Verses, a beautifully written novel that was, in my view, tame in its supposed mockery of Islam. To Ayatollah Khomeini of Iran, however, the book was blasphemous. After a bounty was put on his head, Rushdie lived under British protection while his book was burnt on the streets and craven politicians, such as the former Labour MP Keith Vaz, spoke out in protest. Cat Stevens, the singer now known as Yusuf Islam, said in a speech to students in London that said he must be killed. Later, he claimed to have not called for Rushdie's death. Yet, while Rushdie has survived this hostility so far, others have not. And he talked about other publishers and translators that I mentioned to you earlier. I would suggest that it is delusional, a fantasy conjured up by Western liberals to distract from a mere more sinister truth that over 30 years they have worked as the de facto accomplices of the Ayatollah, assisting in the task of dismantling free speech, sending fear through those who dare to criticize or ridicule religion or anything else. Rushdie in this sense is not and never was a historical affair, but a live scandal running through the veins of British life, not to mention other Western societies. You know, you have to think back. And there's so many being, there's so many writings now this week that just really hit the nail on the head. But you have to think back to the attack by ISIS on Charlie Hebdo, the magazine that ridiculed the Prophet Muhammad. Fourteen were killed in a terror attack at the time in 2015, I believe. And you saw the, the French people come to the streets and defend the freedom and stand together in unity against the theocrats of political Islam. And the French government, to its credit now, its leadership has begun to target not just the militancy and terrorism as a tactic, but the idea of political Islam and its, and its separatist mindset and its antipathy for laïcité and the secular policies of, of France and Western Enlightenment. As Gavin Mortimer wrote in The Spectator in Britain, France's support of Rushdie puts Britain to shame. Why won't politicians confront the barbarism, the extremism, 
And he goes on to say, if any further evidence was needed of the moral cowardice of the British political class that's been provided in the wake of the appalling attack on Salman Rushdie at the Chautauqua Institution. And he said there were, of course, messages condemning the atrocity in New York. Although notably, it took Sir Kerr Starmer and Sir Ed Davey the best part of 24 hours to find the time to react. One might have expected the leaders of two of the three main political parties in Britain to consider such a sinister assault on Western values worthy of immediate comment. And he goes on to name others that did respond. Boris Johnson reacted promptly to the news saying he was appalled that Sir Salman Rushdie had been stabbed while exercising a right we should never cease to defend. But the Prime Minister didn't elaborate on what that right was, nor why Rushdie's defense of it resulted in his being stabbed multiple times. You know, I said the same thing about President Biden's comments. They were notably strong in its defense of Salman Rushdie, but it didn't say what he was threatened by. Not one mention of Iran, not one mention of Islamist theocracy and the battle and the jihadis and, and, and the difference in societal mores and what we're up against between freedom versus theocratic oppression and militant Islamism. He had an opportunity to talk about what Salman Rushdie dedicated his life to, but instead just held him up as if he was talking in a vacuum against no enemies, and as if the enemies of liberty are just generic sort of crazy people. Going back to Mortimer's piece. France is well used to such barbaric assaults on the freedom of expression, having experienced having experienced in recent years the slaughter of the staff of Charlie Hebdo and the savage murder of Samuel Paty, the schoolteacher slain on a suburban street two years ago. In both cases, the assailants were Islamic extremists, avenging in their minds the prophet and the French political class understood immediately the motivation for Friday's attempted murder of Rushdie. They were also prepared to name it while taking care to make the distinction between the religion and the political ideology. Eric Ciotti of the center-right Republicans spoke of his immense emotion at the news of the attack. He is a symbol against Islamist barbarism of the free world and of tolerance, as well as an immense writer. Others spoke of Islamist hatred and stated that Rushdie inspires all those who want to defend their civilization and humanism against obscurantism. Aurore Berg, parliamentary president of Emmanuel Macron's Renaissance Party, described the British novelist as a global symbol of resistance to Islamist totalitarianism. So there we go. The clarity, the clarity from the French who understand what they're up against as secularists, as those who believe in a society based in reason, liberty, against theocracy. You'd think America, founded in liberty against theocracy, would be also speaking from the rooftops in defense of Salman Rushdie, but there's been a muted silence, a negligent, a quiet, a quiet since Salman Rushdie's near death, that I have to tell you frankly, as an activist in this area, is unsettling. It is unsettling not to see a rush from every battlefront in the media, universities, academia, faith-based communities, to defend Salman Rushdie as an icon 
representing exactly where the cancer is within Muslim establishment institutions from the Wahhabis of Saudi Arabia to the Khomeinis of Iran to the to the Sharia statists of Pakistan to the Muslim Brotherhood of Egypt to the Islamists of ISIS in Iraq and Syria and the Arab militant dictators of Assad and the history of Saddam Hussein, Gaddafi and so many others monarchs and otherwise who have created incubators of radical Islam, petro-Islam that is a manufacturer of cancers, of radicalism. And all they need to do to snuff, to snuff out freedom and liberties, they don't need to invade us with a militant military invasion on our shores. No, they need to basically make us feel bad about criticizing a faith. And we turn into ourselves and become free speech police against criticism of Islam. And thus we have invoked de facto blasphemy laws in the United States. And here you have now the effectuator of the blasphemy law, a militant radical by Hadi Matar that at the worst is now going to get second degree murder charges as he was completing what he felt to be an act of his faith. Now really? I talked to you earlier about the theological foundation of where this comes from. It comes from a belief that he was acting as a soldier, a jihadi, to kill an apostate that was a seditious, treasonous individual. I, as an American who served in the U.S. Navy, I certainly understand what sedition is. I understand what treason is. But the nation-state, the modern nation-state of Western liberal democracy defines treason and sedition much different. Much different under the rubric of a unified idea of freedom and liberty that protects individuals, sometimes at the expense of the collective, versus Islamic State theocracy and the historical fascist states, whether it's of Europe in the 20th century or even before the Enlightenment, those fascist states always snuffed out the individuals at the expense to protect the collective. And this is what is at stake, ladies and gentlemen, as we saw peppered stories here and there about Salman Rushdie's health and him coming and, and, and certainly welcomed, welcome news of his improvement. If his pain is really not in vain, we should be pushing every Islamic organization to finally own up to what the heck they have done in the last 20, 50 years to counter the cancers within that, that push women to the back of the mosque, that prevent any questioning of the texts that are on the shelves of every mosque across the country, that have not had a civil rights movement within, that have not tolerated diversity of thought. I mean, for a left, left organizations that claim to be of diversity and equity, where is their equity for people who disagree with the totalitarians running their mosques and their Islamic organizations? Where is their equity? Where is Ilhan Omar, who was recently, just a couple of weeks ago, arrested because she's talking about women's rights and abortion rights as she was arrested in front of our Supreme Court? Well, that court is the most free one in the land and the planet compared to what her faith is producing 
my faith is producing when it comes to militants that try to snuff out anyone who does any criticism and puts it in print and has the audacity to go to a microphone at a at an institution like Chautauqua or any university to talk about it, simply talk about it. They're afraid of words and they will not defend people's rights to say any of those words. And they talk about January 6th and other things as if there's moral equivalency there. I'm sorry, but this, this topic runs to the core of all that is wrong with our society as the speech police have started to kick people off Twitter and every social media because of opinions about vaccines, opinions about politicians and whatever else it might be. And then all of a sudden, we don't cover the attempted murder, assassination as part of a fatwa, sharia invoked law that nobody ever that no other government by the way countered none of the islamic media and governances countered the khomeinist fatwa it was out there and constantly repeatedly enacted against translators and others as i mentioned before free speech is going to be the primary front line in this debate ladies and gentlemen I'll have a lot more to say about this. We have a coalition called the Clarity Coalition, Champions for Liberty Against the Radical Islamist Tyranny. It includes not only Muslims in our Muslim reform movement, but it includes leaders that have, some of whom are former Muslim, ex-Muslims, some of whom are atheists, and of many of those of other faiths who have been in the anti-jihad space working to educate folks of every front about the threat of global jihad that comes from within a constituency of a quarter of the world's population which are Muslim and is continuing to grow as we draw within plagued by our own problems here economically whether it be inflation and and COVID and so many other things but at the end of the day we have to be able to multitask ladies and gentlemen we have to get away from our, our pathological ADD and begin to treat diseases in a long-term pattern. And that's what our Clarity Coalition is trying to do, is to bring all sentient people together left to right, of all faiths or no faith, and begin to say, hey, there's a problem, and it's not just terrorism, it's not just assassination attempts, it is the protection of freedom and liberty, it is the defeat of political Islam that we need to do. And by the way, also lost on some of the media even here in Arizona was the fact that, again, the Islamists at the Council on American-Islamic Relations and their hackish attorneys lost the appeal against Nick DeMosk, a professor at Scottsdale Community College. They lost their appeal. Nick's case was, uh, he was uh, sued, as was Scottsdale Community College, for supposedly violating the rights of his Muslim students because he posted some questions about the connection of Islam and faith to what Al-Qaeda's interpretation was of Islam. And those were part of his counterterrorism, his, his terrorism and politics course at Scottsdale Community College. And that became international news because 
some Islamist comedians and others with large social media platforms took snapshots that the student published of his text and of his test and all of a sudden said that this was somehow Islamophobic and bigoted against Islam and it was simply questions that he had been teaching for quite some time. And in her 2020 order, District Judge Susan Brnovich found that Nicholas Damask world politics coursework and quizzes did not violate Sabra, Mr. Sabra's First Amendment rights or require him to abandon his faith as a Muslim to answer the questions. And she said curriculum that merely conflicts with the student's religious beliefs does not violate the free exercise clause, she wrote. Dr. Damask's course did not inhibit Mr. Sabra's personal worship in any way, Brnovich wrote. Instead, students merely were asked to demonstrate an understanding of the material taught. And then the appellate court now has ruled in agreement in a two-to-one ruling. It found that Sabra suffered no First Amendment injury, though his mere exposure to inflammatory, through his mere exposure to what he thought were inflammatory course materials. Damask has said, this is a win for for civilization. Our values, our institutions are being eroded all around us. It's an odd coalition of the left and multiculturalists and the psychotic, and they're working to undermine everything that's core, that's central to America. And here's one little bright spot that our core values, our institutions, like higher education, have been saved. He remained on faculty and just completed his latest world politics course with no changes in its content. Care, the Council for Islamic Radicalization, oh, I'm sorry, the Council of American Islamic Relations, had sued the district and several individually, but the courts agreed that as a public employee, he had qualified immunity for issues related to his work. And this could have affected everyone, most educational centers, if it had gone any other way. Because CARE wanted to remove objectionable course materials, remove, taking away educational freedom, freedom of speech, and again, the core issue that motivated the terrorist that tried to kill Salman Rushdie just a few days ago. So this is about free speech on multiple levels. And if any of you are not awoke or awakened yet, awakened, not woke, if any of you are not awakened yet, wake up and wake up your neighbors, wake up your communities, that these are the issues that we need to stand for. If there's any legacy that we leave for our children and our grandchildren, that if we're going to defeat jihad, we need to stand shoulder to shoulder with Muslims who recognize the cancer and are beginning to reform against the scriptures that are interpreted as against blasphemy, that restrict speech, that equate it with sedition. And it all stems from the Islamic State concept. As long as there's an Islamic state living and breathing that has the Quran as its constitution, you'll never be able to reform these ideas. Because that state will be animated by a military that will seek jihad, that will then have unity and cohesion through a belief in the interpretation of Islamic law that animates that jihad. But if you end the Islamic state and you create a secular state that separates mosque and state, not to take away faith from an individual, but that that faith is under God, that it should have a generic interpretation of principles and not one specific to Islam. So ultimately, ultimately, this is where the battle is. And hopefully in the next few weeks we will come together. I know that there's some 
people that have begun reading from Salman Rushdie's books to honor his writing. And God bless them. Keep doing that as much as I might disagree with all of the, what, what animates some of that writing and about its perception. The bottom line is, is we as Muslims have a lot of work to do to change what is the perception in the West about what Muslims do, think, or feel when it comes to folks that criticize the prophet or our tradition or our thinking or our theology. We need to reform the normative interpretations of the institutions that is that theology. And in the meantime, until we do, over the next few generations, we need to defend with every breath we have all of those that might criticize our faith, with no exception. More to come on this. This is Zudi Jasser. It's great to be back. Let your friends know about Reform This at Reform This Radio on Twitter and also at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R. And also find our Clarity Coalition of anti-jihadists that are coming together. And you'll hear more about us in the coming months to years. This is Zudi Jasser. God bless. We'll see you soon. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.